Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It was almost as if the minute my mother called the police, everything just snowballed out of control into this, like, huge monster that we couldn't escape. Almost immediately, because of the high-profile nature, I felt like I was at the mercy of powerful men who didn't care about me. They were just using this case, especially the judge, for his own benefit, for his own publicity. And it was clear no one was interested in actual justice or actual truth or helping me as the victim in the crime, I was irrelevant. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. And nobody knew it was going to happen. It's just one of those things that just nobody expects. And there was no reason to think anything bad would happen. That's Samantha Geimer. And she's talking about an experience in 1978 that would come to shape the course of her life. She was 13, living in Los Angeles with her mother and aspiring to a career in acting and modeling. Who you know is everything in Hollywood. And lucky her she caught the eye of a famous director who wanted to photograph her for Vogue. This was like a career starter. This was like jackpot. You have this really famous director who's going to put you on the map. Everybody was excited. As you may have already guessed, the story you're about to hear involves a traumatic sexual experience. It's really hard to hear. It's even harder to tell. Rather than asking Samantha to relive it yet again, we've decided to tell this part of her story through excerpts from her memoir, The Girl, where she recounts what happened to her in minute detail. Her choice to recount those details, and our choice to include them here, were not made lightly. We don't want to engage in rape porn. But these details, 
how she was lured, coerced, and eventually violated, are crucial to understanding how she has come to feel about it all today. In hindsight, the warning signs were there from the beginning. When Samantha's mother suggested she come along on the shoot, the director said, no, mom's presence might make young Samantha self-conscious in front of the camera. Not wanting to be a crazy, controlling stage mother, she didn't fight him on it. In an initial test shoot, the director asked Samantha to pose topless, and she complied, knowing her mother would disapprove, but wanting to be professional. Sure, no problem. I'll take off my top. Besides, breasts are beautiful. That's what the joy of sex said, and I thought so. It's just that I didn't have them. Not really. Samantha didn't tell her mother about this incident. A few days later, the director called again. He wanted to go ahead with the full shoot. He picked her up in his car and took her to the house of a famous actor. On the way there, he asked her, Have you ever had sex? That was an odd question. I replied yes. It was true, and I did not want him to think of me as a child. During the shoot, he plied her with champagne and again asked her to pose topless. I drink. He refills my glass. I drink more. He keeps refilling, but I try to pace myself. I also try to follow his directions and do a good job. He offers her a quaalude, a pill that causes relaxation, euphoria, and sedation. Then he asks again, and then, oh, I don't know. He wants me to. How can I say no? He asks her to get into the jacuzzi, naked. You should take your panties off. Oh, no, but, well, okay, fine. There must be a reason. But then he gets in, too. Come here, he says. I want out. Now. How fucking stupid could I be? It's a hard thought to hold on to. Come here. I want you to feel something, he says. I knew this wasn't right, but I don't know what to do. Then everything hits at once. The steam, the heat, the alcohol, the pill, and the panic. He asks if I'm okay. No, I'm not okay, I say. I better go home now. I try backing away, but he holds my arms at my side and kisses me. I say, no, come on. But between the pill and the champagne, it's like my own voice is very far away. He takes her to a red velvet couch in the bedroom and starts going down on her. He asks if it feels good, which it does. And that in itself is awful. I don't want this. My mind recoils, but my body is betraying me. And that's when I check out. I go far, far away. There is a sense of complete and utter emptiness. Oh, just my body. I'm not really in here. Expressing concerns about impregnating her, he then sodomizes her. He even pauses to answer a knock at the door, then returns to finish what he started. I started to cry with both relief and anger. I knew something bad had happened and that I had done some dumb things, but I was going to be okay. After all, he was this famous man and a famously experienced lover who hadn't wanted to hurt me. 
He even wanted me to feel pleasure. Later, I heard that older men seducing young girls was quite the thing where he came from, that in his mind, I should probably be grateful for his experience, his technique. But what he said on the drive home suggested otherwise. Don't tell your mother. This will just be our secret. When they arrived at her house, Samantha ran straight to her room and called her ex-boyfriend. Meanwhile, the director showed her mother the photos from the test shoot, and when he revealed the topless shots, Samantha's mother freaked out and booted him from the house. Samantha's sister overheard her telling her ex-boyfriend what had happened, and that's how her mom found out. I heard her saying over and over, the fucker, the fucker, I'll kill him. Samantha just wanted to be alone. She didn't want to talk about it with her mother, and she certainly didn't want to call the police. Again, you can probably guess why. In later years, if you asked me what rape was, and I was asked over and over, it was being abducted by a stranger, being taken to the woods, to a dark alley. It was quick and brutal and anonymous. There was no room for seduction or gentleness, even coercion, in my definition. Given contemporary notions of what sexual assault entailed, it's understandable that while Samantha felt violated, she didn't feel like the victim of a crime. Which sounds crazy today. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who'd argue a 13-year-old could consent to sex with a grown man, or that sexually objectifying a 13-year-old was anything less than criminally pedophilic. But in Samantha's world, Hollywood in the late 70s, the eroticization of prepubescent girls was almost mainstream. Brooke Shields had posed nude for pictures when she was 10. And then, at 12, she was starring in Pretty Baby, a movie about a child prostitute that probably couldn't be made today. Just one year before, Jodie Foster had raised eyebrows with her portrayal of a teenage prostitute in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. A cocktail of external messaging, self-recrimination, and Samantha's own budding sexuality informed her perspective of what happened to her. It was bad, but it was complicated. Not so for Samantha's mom. My mom called the police because she felt like that's what she had to do. There wasn't any thought about consequences to us. When you call the police and say, my daughter's been raped, she's only 14, some older man had sex with her, you don't expect the next day that your daughter's getting interrogated, that she's getting fingerprinted, that she's getting doubted, and that you're, of course, now the worst mom in the world because somehow it's your fault that it happened. Even like 35 years after it happened, I'm like, wouldn't you take it back? And she's like, no. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, everything we've been through, everything our family went through, you wouldn't just not make that call? And she's like, no, I would have called the police. I'm glad I called the police. And that's what I had to do. And then I realized that she was showing me that I should stand up for myself, that I was valued, and that I wasn't to be mistreated, and I didn't have to roll over and take that. It turned out to be a good lesson and a favor to me, but at the time, it just seemed like a giant mistake. (laughs) Yeah, can you take me back to those early days of 
having reported the rape to the police? Like, what were people saying to you that made you realize that something was wrong? The police didn't believe me. At the emergency room, it was just like a bunch of adults who, for some reason, didn't believe what I was saying. And I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to call the police. I didn't want to go through any of this. So I'm being forced to tell the truth and then have people look at me like I'm lying. And I had to sit in front of a desk with the district attorney and a few other men standing behind him and then ask me questions like, was I having sex with my stepfather? (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) things like that. So this is where I become angry and stay angry for the rest of, like, the following year. I was just angry. But it was clear that they didn't believe me. Samantha's experience of being immediately doubted and suspected is not uncommon. It's almost cliche that survivors of sexual assault are treated with anything from unconscious insensitivity to outright hostility from law enforcement. In Samantha's case, though, there was a glaring, aggravating factor. If we were accusing some guy down the street, some appalling relative, we might have been more boring, but we'd be believable. In our case, though, we were naming one of the most famous movie directors in the world. That famous director was Roman Polanski. In Chinatown, he exposed the dark side of corruption. In Repulsion, he explored a warped mind. In Rosemary's Baby, he examined the occult. No one does it to you like Roman Polanski. Polanski had risen to Hollywood stardom from the lowest place imaginable. A child in Poland during the Holocaust, his parents were taken to concentration camps where his mother was murdered, and he was left to fend for himself in the Krakow ghetto. With a backstory like that, it was hard not to root for Polanski's success. His first feature film, Knife in the Water, earned him an Academy Award nomination. And Rosemary's Baby, a box office hit, earned him another, making him a household name and one of the most sought-after directors in Hollywood. And then tragedy struck. This was at the home of movie director Roman Polanski, and it was his wife, Sharon Tate, who was one of the victims. In 1969, Polanski's pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, was brutally murdered, along with four others, at the direction of Charles Manson. Polanski was devastated. The last day I talked to her was a few hours before the tragedy happened. The last few years I spent with her were only time of true happiness in my life. Hollywood, in turn, embraced him even further, a genius filmmaker with a tragic life. Is it any wonder people were reluctant to believe Samantha's accusations? Even so, after hours of occasionally hostile questioning, the LAPD and the district attorney found Samantha's complaint credible enough to take action. This set in motion a series of events which traumatized Samantha even more than the rape itself. As she writes in her memoir, Roman Polanski's arrest was, in a sense, my arrest. 
Just about everyone who lived through or read about this sordid chapter in Hollywood history had an opinion about the renowned director and the girl he was accused of drugging, raping, and sodomizing, me. Opinions on the Polanski case go something like this. He was a vile pedophile, or he was a troubled man whose own horrific background did not allow him to gauge the difference between a child and a young woman. And the girl? She was an innocent victim. Or no, she was a cunning Lolita. Or perhaps most commonly, she was a reluctant but ultimately willing player in the crazy ambitions of her stage mother who wanted her little girl to be a star. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. What happened to me and my family is a story about everything that happened after that night and how it's come back a decade later, two decades later. So there's just a lot there to unpack that isn't what people want my story to be, which is bad monster hurts innocent little girl. End of story. Before Polanski was even indicted, the media speculation began in full force. And it was largely against Samantha, known only in the press at the time as the girl. There was a subtext to the early articles. Who was this slutty little girl trying to entrap one of the greatest film directors of all time? But how the case played out in the press was deeply entwined with how it played in the courtroom. I think that from the minute Judge Rittenband took the case from another judge that was supposed to have it assigned to him, his intent was to benefit himself Written band had already presided over Elvis Presley's divorce and Marlon Brando's child custody battle. As the senior judge in Santa Monica and with an attraction to celebrity trials, he snatched the Polanski case for himself. If you want to know what happened to me, my life was changed by a corrupt judge, not by Roman Polanski. This didn't take 15 minutes. Like, I have a this entirely other grown, powerful man abusing me and using me to get something he wanted for himself. What the judge did and what the court did was like a year of torture. There was never a time I didn't feel like I was the one on trial. That began when Samantha was asked to testify before a grand jury. This may sound cavalier, but it is true. If I had to choose between reliving the rape or the grand jury testimony, I would choose the rape. I had to talk about having oral sex, having anal sex, being drunk, being dizzy with the quaalude. They asked me to describe him having an orgasm inside my butt and the semen leaking out. The result of her testimony was that Polanski was indicted on all counts. But that didn't provide hope or solace to Samantha she could already feel the legal system turning away from her interests and towards its own. For the DA, it was all about winning and losing. 
As Samantha writes in her memoir, I remember overhearing adults discussing how fortunate it was that I was not yet even 14 when I was raped, that Roman was in even more trouble because I was 13, how unfortunate it was that there was no physical damage to me, especially rectally. There was this sense of disappointment. If only he'd hurt me worse in more obvious ways, everything would be better. As the pretrial hearings continued, Samantha's trauma became an object to be fought over, downplayed by the defense, magnified by the prosecution. But it went beyond feeling dissected by the legal system, for the judge hardly seemed impartial. In response to the defense suggesting that Samantha's mother had foisted her on Polanski, he called my mother and I a mother-daughter hooker team in court, in his chambers, like out loud in front of other people. But any potential bias towards Polanski was perhaps less damaging to Samantha than his attraction to celebrity and publicity. I mean, he had press conferences in his chambers talking about my case, talking to reporters in chambers on the phone in front of the attorneys. There was no effort or no shame. He didn't even try and hide it. You know, all the judge wanted was to put me on the stand. He had reserved a courtroom next to his for foreign media. Judge Rittenband was, in some ways, a man before his time, inviting the media into the courthouse, preparing the way for the era of televised trials, justice as entertainment. What this meant for Samantha was the press were just as eager to dissect her as the powerful men in the courtroom. News organizations even petitioned the judge to release the grand jury testimony, which would reveal the horrific details of the assault and identify Samantha by name. Samantha's lawyer successfully fought that request, but the European press, which had fewer scruples about naming victims, published her name anyway, leading to a barrage of media inquiries. Samantha began to feel like a fugitive, always on the run, always on the lookout. I was hunted. That's what happened, man. I was hunted. I was 14 years old, and I had reporters show up not only at my school after class, but at my ninth grade graduation. They don't care about your suffering at all and simply want to maximize your suffering to use it for their own benefit. That's not informative. That's not news. Nobody deserves to be used like that. Mm. Not me, not Roman, not you, not anybody. But however harmful the media was, they didn't have the same duty as the DA and the judge. Roman was just some famous movie director in the late 70s. He's not someone in a position of authority and power who's there to protect you. He was just a guy who did a bad thing. You know, I don't want to diminish what he did, but I don't think it's fair to hold Roman Polanski to the standard of a judge or a district attorney, or someone who's taken an oath to do their job and protect you. The closer they got to a trial, with Polanski's defense attorney attacking her credibility in the media, the more Samantha and her family looked for a way out. But the judge in the DA's office had other incentives. For me, punishing Roman doesn't undo anything. Doesn't change what happened. What happened, happened. It's as if when you're a victim of a crime, People want to use you like a club to beat somebody else with without thinking about what it does to you. Right. 
if what he did is wrong, then if hurting me is wrong, then people shouldn't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Using me to hurt somebody else, if that hurts me, like you're still hurting me. And what would hurt her most of all was a prolonged and public trial. As she writes in her memoir, everyone involved seemed to want exactly that. The judge wanted to sit on top of the inevitable international media frenzy. The DA's office wanted to prosecute the criminal and put him away. The defense felt emboldened because of the public success of their campaign to destroy my credibility and was confident it could be extended to the courtroom. The press wanted the trial for the same reasons that sharks like swimming around popular beaches. The only ones who didn't want a trial were me and my family. None of us wanted me to grow up being the focus of an international sex scandal. And all I wanted was a normal life, or at least a chance at one. Avoiding a trial would mean Polanski would face lesser charges. But Samantha and her family knew where their priorities were. Our position was, if he just admits it and apologizes, we're done. But the DA's office had decided that they're not going to plead down these cases. So we had to fight through that. It was a scary thing, you know, begging for mercy, begging for a plea deal. My parents begging, don't put her on the stand if you force this to go to trial. Like, she's okay now, but she is not going to be if you put her on the stand. And all he wanted was me on the stand so he could get the cameras in there and he could be the judge in this case and stick it to Roman. I don't think he cared about Roman's punishment further than how it reflected upon himself. Technically, the criminal justice system doesn't work for crime victims, and for good reason. But as a result, some judges and district attorneys lose sight of victims' interests altogether. Others don't. Samantha found that her advocate in law enforcement, her only advocate, was the assistant district attorney, Roger Gunson. Roger Gunson was like our knight in shining armor. Uh, We are concerned with the protecting the privacy of the uh, girl, the complaining witness in this case. He saved us. He's the one who helped us get the plea deal. With Samantha refusing to be a cooperative witness for the prosecution, Gunson was able to broker a deal with Polanski's attorney. With her lawyer, the DA, and the defense all in agreement, it was hard for Judge Rittenband to refuse the plea. He accepted it, and Polanski pled guilty to one count of unlawful sexual intercourse. But the circus continued, for the judge still had to decide on a sentence, and his prime concern seemed to be how it would play in the media. Just listen to reporter Richard Brenneman as interviewed in Marina Zenovich's 2008 documentary, Wanted and Desired. The judge called me into chambers. He looked at me and said, Dick, tell me, what the hell do I do with Polanski? And I went, whoa, your honor, that's your decision. That's not mine. I'm, I'm a reporter. I can't advise you on something like that. The answer was far from clear. An opinion was split. On the one hand, a child had been sexually assaulted. On the other hand, the probation officer issued a pre-sentencing report that concluded incalculable emotional damage could result from incarcerating the defendant whose own life has been a seemingly unending series of punishments. Judge Rittenband, 
trying to thread the needle, settled on an unorthodox plan. He asked the DA and Polanski's defense attorney to put on what amounted to a show hearing with pre-scripted lines. It was a very strange feeling to be arguing when I knew exactly what the result was going to be. This allowed Rittenband to arrive at his sentence while appearing fair and tough. Judge Rittenband granted Polanski a three-month stay to conclude his present work. At the end of that time, the film director will go to Chino State Prison for 90 days diagnostic testing. The 90-day psych evaluation wasn't actually a sentence, so it couldn't be appealed. Judge Rittenband's plan was to let the media heat die off. And then, when Polanski's evaluation period was over, he'd deliver a definitive sentence of time served. But the officials at Chino State Prison released Polanski after just 42 days, declaring his evaluation complete. The media had already been criticizing Judge Rittenband for the 90-day evaluation. And this early release led him to rescind the deal he'd agreed to with Polanski's attorney. Instead, he let it be known that he was considering a sentence of anywhere from one to 50 years in state prison, a de facto life sentence. As Polanski told the story later, there was one seat left on that afternoon's British Airways flight to Heathrow. He bought it. Polanski fled to Paris just hours before he was to be sentenced. Judge Rittenband and the media proclaimed this a miscarriage of justice. You ran away, Roman. You ran away? Well, I, as you say, ran away because I think that I was very unfortunate to have a judge who uh, uh, misused justice. But to Samantha... All I could think was freedom. No more telling my story. No more seeing myself called sex victim girl in the paper. A week later, Polanski's defense attorney successfully filed a motion supported by Assistant DA Gunson and Samantha's attorney to have Judge Rittenband disqualified and removed from the case. And finally, things settled down. After Roman left the country, we never, ever spoke of it again. Never. It wasn't like we were trying to hide it or trying to ignore it, but we buried it. You just put a brick wall in front of it and walk by it like it's not there anymore. Wow. Saying it now, I, we sound like a really dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we did, you know. Um, so, you know, better advice, maybe people should talk about things. <laughs> right. Not bury them for 30 years. But perhaps it wasn't just dysfunction that kept Samantha and her family from wanting to talk about it. As the decades passed, the media wouldn't stop talking about it. When Polanski was in the news, so was Samantha. And the tabloid vans would once again park outside her house, trapping her inside for days. Ironically, it was like Samantha was serving Polanski's sentence for him. Meanwhile, he remained in Europe. The Oscar. Successful as ever. Goes for Roman Polanski. 
for the pianist. The Academy congratulates Roman Polanski and accepts this award on his behalf. But the court wasn't finished. By 2009, Judge Rittenband was long dead and a new district attorney had his eye on Polanski, fugitive from justice. The next thing that happened is he was arrested in Switzerland, and that was like a nuclear bomb went off in my life. U.S. prosecutors, knowing Polanski planned to travel to Switzerland to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award, laid a trap, a warrant authorizing the Swiss to arrest him. The district attorney in L.A. says until he's back in court, there won't be any justice. But justice according to whom? And for whom? For Samantha, once again, it was like being on the wrong side of the looking glass. What everyone else called justice was precisely its opposite a prolonged extradition battle and trial to put a 76-year-old man in prison for the rest of his life and the media attention that would come with it would only expose her and her family to more trauma. The only clear winner was the new district attorney, Steve Cooley, who, like the Queen of Hearts, could sit atop his throne of authority and shout, off with their heads, with little regard for whose heads would roll. Even though the DA is supposed to let victims of crime know that they're going to try and extradite someone, they didn't tell me. I was out of town. Complete surprise. Paparazzi and people on my property at my house. My adult sons are here. They don't know what's going on. We had to go into lockdown. Don't answer the phone. So now, once again, here's a DA going after him because he's running for a higher office, throwing Roman and I both under the bus for his own publicity. For Samantha's family, the renewed harassment from the media just dredged up old feelings of guilt. My mom's like, I deserve it. I don't care if they say it. It's my fault, because I should have protected you. No matter how much I tell them I'm okay, it's never enough. No matter how much I say, if I just would have told you that he took those topless photos of me, there never would have been another photo shoot. But I didn't tell you because I was stupid, <laughs> you know? Like, one different decision by anybody all along the way, and maybe this never happened. But it did happen, and I don't think I can ever make my family feel less responsible for it. But for Samantha, the media assault once again aligned her with Polanski. So here's now another circumstance where we're both on the spot, he's under house arrest. I'm in house arrest because there's people outside my house. Hard copy parked outside my house and people saying, if, you know, if I don't give them my story, they're gonna write something terrible about me. Polanski had already paid Samantha a settlement for a civil suit she brought against him. But after a 2008 documentary about the case, Marina Zenovich's Wanted and Desired, he wrote to Samantha and finally apologized. Roman wrote me a note and basically was apologizing to me, but also to my mom. So I think that went a long way. Him writing, it wasn't your mother's fault, it was my fault. You're right, they should give her a break. I think that hearing that from him probably went a long way 
to make her feel better. So, you know, in the end, he took responsibility. He apologized. He put the blame where the blame, you know, belongs. But somehow that's not the end result because he's a celebrity and there's still things for people to gain from talking about this, from litigating it. So we don't get to let it end quietly and gently. It just lingers. And there's nothing Roman can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing my mom can do about it, you know? Samantha hadn't replied to him. But once he'd been arrested in Switzerland and the media was back on her doorstep... After that, I decided, like, I really wanted to tell the truth of the story. So I got in touch with Roman because I wanted to write the book and let him know I wanted to tell this story, and that was the beginning of our contact. And I was a little bit uh, prickly. My first outreach to Roman was kind of like, listen, buddy, I'm going to do whatever I want, and who are you to stop me? (laughs) (laughs) And that turned into like, fine, do whatever you want. Let's be, you know, on the same page here. And uh, we agreed that we had a, both had a pretty good understanding of the truth and neither of us were out to harm each other. And and then, you know, over the years, it's become more friendly because he sees the way I get treated and I see the way he gets treated. And this has had devastating effect on our families through the last 30 years. I mean, I'd much rather have his support than have some type of bad or unpleasant relationship with him. I mean, I think we're a perfect example of the best outcomes, you know. He and I as individuals are not this giant situation that's gone on for 40 years that we've been having to live through. That's not who we are, but it's like a situation that we're both in. And I'm glad we have understanding between us and we can separate ourselves from all the surrounding noise and just be human beings. Why is that not a better story than somebody's forever damaged and somebody's forever punished? That's a great question. For the story about everlasting trauma and punitive justice won't go away. Even after D.A. Cooley's bid to get Polanski arrested failed, the Swiss refused to extradite him when Cooley's office withheld documents showing that Polanski had technically served his original sentence. The story most people hear is Polanski, the predator who got away, and Samantha, the anti-victim who helped him do it. People want victims and monsters. They want black and white narratives. It's never been my story. It's been this story told by other people. At the beginning, it was this horrible mom who pawned her daughter off on Roman because we were just gold diggers and whores. And then as times changed, now it's like Roman's a monster and I was terribly injured and hurt and I was a child and it was so horrific and horrible. It's like, no, that's also not what happened. Samantha doesn't feel like a victim, and yet so many people want her to be one. I feel like I've spent 40 years of my life with people telling me that I should be hurt, wanting me to be hurt. And the minute you don't, the minute you tell them, no, I'm fine. No, I'm not full of hate and anger and pain. Actually, I survived that. They turn on you. Now you're the bad guy. 
you're a rape apologist and you're slapping all other rape victims in the face. And it's like, no, I'm not. And the fact that you act like you care about a victim of a crime, and then the minute you don't get what you want from them, you turn on that person and start shaming them and attacking them shows that you don't care either. You know, just we all go through our stuff and people need to know it's okay to be okay. Yep. That's important in this day and age when it's not okay to be okay. So right, the truth is the truth and I don't have to be angry and it's not fair to want me to be angry. I mean, what's crazy about it is you have never like let Roman off the hook or at least in your book, in your description of what happened, like, it was painful for me to read. Like, I kept wanting to interject and save 13-year-old you from what was about <laughs> to happen to you. And uh, at the same time, like, so you're not someone who's saying, I wasn't raped. Like, you very clearly say, I was raped. Let's make no mistake. Don't minimize what happened, but also don't maximize it. We shouldn't be encouraging people to, like, feel maximum damage. That's not helpful. Or hold on to maximum pain because you owe it to somebody. And all those negative emotions, they only hurt you. They only weigh you down. I can be as angry as I want at Roman. doesn't hurt him. It hurts me. I see a lot of interest in suffering, a lot of interest in punishment, but I don't see any interest in reconciliation, forgiveness, people who rehabilitate themselves. And just like you don't always have to be a victim, committing a crime or behaving in a way that hurts other people, that doesn't have to be something you carry for your whole life either. And there's just no interest in that. People are complicated. People make mistakes. There's not just good people and bad people. You know, you don't learn anything if you're just casting blame. But a lot of people, and it's hard to blame them, can't seem to get past what Polanski did, regardless of how Samantha feels today. When Polanski was back in the news in 2018, popular podcaster Joe Rogan said, that's where I draw the line. This is for child molestation, drugging and raping a kid. Can't forgive that one. Maybe Joe Rogan can't forgive that. But should his opinion matter? Should the DAs? The people simply do not believe that it's in the best interest of justice to give a wealthy celebrity, and that's what Mr. Polanski is, to give a wealthy celebrity different treatment that's Michelle Hannessy, the deputy DA of Los Angeles, arguing in yet a further bid to get Polanski back in the courtroom that true justice requires that he not be given special treatment. And yet, after 40 years focusing on this case, when the victim has reached her own reconciliation with the man who harmed her, it's hard not to see the court as giving him special treatment of a different sort for their own benefit. You know, I don't understand this need for endless punishment and Shouldn't you have a chance to redeem yourself? Isn't that the end goal? No matter how much you hurt Roman, it'll never take back what he did to me. It doesn't work that way. Hurting somebody doesn't heal someone else. That's just not truth. Even now, it never goes away. It'll never be resolved until the court allows it to be resolved. And until there's a benefit for somebody, 
in that courthouse, it will never be resolved because they're serving themselves. They're not serving justice. That's part of what prompted Samantha to argue on Polanski's behalf in court. Well, it was a little scary. Court's a little scary. I wrote my speech out. I knew it wasn't going to make a difference. I knew I wasn't going to change the judge's mind. But I felt like I had to do it, and I had to show up and show face. But I thought I made a really good argument for if you're not going to dismiss this case, then investigate the misconduct and the corruption. Justice is justice. It doesn't matter if Roman committed a crime. He still deserves justice. And it's your job to assure that justice is done. Samantha asked the court to sentence Polanski to time served in absentia, calling out their hypocrisy in the process. If I was standing here saying, throw the book at him, I want him in jail for life, my opinion would count. When I'm standing here saying, I'm fine and nothing you can do to him will help me or anybody else, suddenly it's the state's, not me, that counts. So it's a really hypocritical view. Either victims count or they don't. But the judge was not moved by her appeal. And their answer is, not until he comes back here and we can put him in court for the cameras to see and we can't do what's best for the victim. And that's what I got to live with. You know, I guess it's um, it's easy to forgive Roman because he apologized and I know he's sorry. I still feel like I'm waiting for the next time. You know, maybe it'll be D.A. Lacey. I, I understand she's going to be running for re-election I'm sure she'd love to use this case for her benefit, and she has no interest in investigating the misconduct in her own department and in the court, which is her job. So I'm still waiting for somebody to admit they were wrong and apologize and do the right thing. So putting aside your life in the shadow of this whole situation, who are you? I'm just a honest-to-God, regular person who does regular things and has normal family problems and weddings and car accidents, you know, the gamut, all of it. And then I have a little side of me that's like professional, that's like, okay, go time, put on the Polanski girl, or I always call myself sex victim girl, put on that face, slap some makeup on, sit up straight, go out there and do these interviews in this seemingly never-ending court saga and media saga. Perhaps the strangest part of this whole story is that these two systems, which we rely on to deliver justice and to reveal the truth, did neither. And in their failures, gave a rape victim and the man who raped her a set of common enemies, which allowed them to reconcile on their own terms and we have somehow ended up on the same side of this. Like, that's how bad the court mistreated us. And the media, well... I think I feel like more often than not, nobody wants my true story. They want me to tell a story that they want to hear. They already have an agenda. They already have an opinion. And they aren't really asking for the truth. They're trying to shape my story, bend my story, edit my story to fit what they've already decided it wants to be. And I feel like I've spent my life trying to tell the truth of it. It doesn't matter if people say, I wanted it. I made him do it. I brought the drugs. He paid my mom. People can say whatever they want, but it'll never be the truth. They can believe it. It'll still never be the truth. I know what the truth is, and that's all I need. 
Join us next time as we sit down with Wait But Why author Tim Urban and his wife Tandis to talk about the labyrinth of creativity, social dysfunction, and the political polarization that's tearing our nation apart. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us. Edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays. With theme music by Josh Budo Karp. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener-supported. This podcast is listener-supported. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson.